Welcome to the Meant for Good podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I believe that each of us have been given gifts, dreams, skills, and ideas that we're meant to share with each other. My goal is to share stories that challenge and inspire you and I to connect with people around us because we are meant for good. Hello, I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I'm so excited today to have a living legend on the show with me. <laughs> um, Brent Mayer is a multi-Grammy award-winning producer, songwriter, and just an all-around incredible human. And he's the reason I'm in Nashville, actually. Brent brought my sisters and I out here to record some albums, and we've made some music that I'm really proud of. But also, Brent has an incredible story, even of how he got into music. And I am just so honored to welcome Brent to the show. So, hi, Brent. Well, hi, Han. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm excited that you're doing this. This is great. Thank you. So... I want to open up the space for you to share whatever you want to contribute. Mm -hmm. But I also know that from a young age, you had people that believed in you mm -hmm. and kind of helped chart your course mm -hmm. by that faith that they had in you. So mm -hmm. is there anything from that time that you would like to share? Well, gosh, I guess you'd have to go back to my early childhood when I think um, I think I was like in the fifth grade. And that's when I first started, you know, playing music other than just banging our piano without having any idea what I was doing. But uh, my first instrument was trumpet. And our music teacher recognized early on that, um, that I had a gift, not only just for that particular instrument, but in music overall, maybe he recognized a little bit something more in me than some of the other, you know, young people uh, at the same age group, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think, his name was Mr. Miller, by the way. And of course, I had a crush on his wife, Mrs. Miller. Oh, she was so <laughs> cute. You know, my first fifth grade crush. Anyway, and Mr. Miller meant a lot to me in a couple of different levels. My family was uh, a, a non-functioning family, unfortunately, to um, alcoholism and drug abuse. So both of my parents, there were times when my sister and I were sort of orphaned out to other families to live with while they'd be trying to get themselves back on track and things like this. And Mr. Miller realized that one of my ways to cope with um, some of the stress and, and some of the things that, that I'd be going through at that age was music. And fortunately, they, they lived right next door to our house, which, by the way, was in Chase, Kansas, this little tiny town, right smack dab in the middle of Kansas. Anyway, so in um, afternoons when uh, I would be at home, I'd be in my basement and I'd make my own mutes up so I could mimic certain records with wah-wahs and stuff like that. And now he's doing that by the, literally after I'd been playing the trumpet like hardly a year. Hmm. I was advancing that quick. And so he would come over and share music with me, songs with me, you know, well, take a listen to this. If you like that, where do you hear this? And he was just a, a marvelous teacher. And he's, he said something to me that at the time went in one ear and just out the other. But years later, I would revisit that, this particular moment, and it was a life-changing thing for me. Over at the house one day, mother and father were not there. And, um, he just said, you know, Brent, he said, uh, uh, you, you have to realize this, that you have a, 
an unusual gift for music. He said, this has to be part of your life. So whatever happens in life, and he may have been looking ahead a little bit, just knowing some of the tragedy that was already going on, that I would need something like this. And so he told me, well, so there is something you can do. There is something you're going to be really good at, and it's music. So always somehow keep this in your life. Now, you can imagine as a kid in the sixth grade, that would go in, I mean, you know, like, excuse me, you know. But uh, years later, it did come back to me in a moment of need, and it, uh, it met all the difference, you know. So Mr. Miller was one of my absolutely first mentors and believer in guiding me towards so it would be, um, you know, a career of 40-something odd years now. I think mentors are so important, Mm -hmm. and you've definitely been a mentor in my life, Mm -hmm. and I would say you've definitely affected my songwriting process in a way that I Mm -hmm. love. Mm -hmm. Like, I can tell that there are conversations we had, there are songs that we wrote together that shaped part of how I approach a song now, Mm -hmm. and I'm so thankful for that. (laughs) And I think also that's part of my heart behind this meant for good podcast yeah. that no matter what age we are I think there's something that we have to offer to the mm-hmm. people around us and I think the younger generation needs the wisdom from the older mm-hmm. generation mm-hmm. and for us when we're young the people who are a little older a little far, farther along have the power the capacity to speak identity over us and mm-hmm. to call out things that, that they see in us that mm-hmm. are good that are going to affect the world for good mm-hmm. that could change our lives and I love that Mr. Miller did that for you. Like he mm-hmm. saw that in you. He saw something that was part of your destiny right. and called that out in an early age. Mm-hmm. And what a gift that is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That. Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, that sometimes we're mentors knowingly. And then sometimes I think we are unknowingly. Like when we sit down and write or when I'm writing with, with any writer, whether they're younger than me, the same age, plus or minus 10, whatever. You know, at that moment in time, mentoring is not part of the process. You know, we're just trying to do something together that we like. We're trying to create, you know, a piece of music that has, at least in our minds, a reason for being, right? But I think that we can't help but mentor because of just what we're sharing. And then I wind up sharing with you and other writers in the present day that great songwriters like Harlan Howard and many other, Mike Reed, so many other great writers, Don Slitz, folks that I've written with, once you learn something, you know it. It's there. And so it's not when I sit with you, oh, wait, till I show you something that Harlan showed me. Well, I've never said that because I'm not thinking about that while we're writing. Part of, um, of our mentoring is just, it's just a natural thing that we pass on creating together. And then there's other times, you know, when it's more of um, somebody wants some information, like they, they want a little bit of honest critiquing or some ideas or why they can't finish up a tune or something like that. And then that's, that's a little bit of a, you know, that's a different deal there. But uh, both equal, equally as important, you know? Yes. Yeah, I've noticed when I learn something, when I accept it and I embrace it for myself, sometimes it rubs off on other people. Mm-hmm. Like we'll be in the same vicinity in this breakthrough mm-hmm. that I had. They're getting excited about it and they're 
open to it happening for them too. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of rubs off. And I think it's similar in songwriting where you found out how to create something that tells a story or gets mm -hmm. a message across. And as you're crafting a song with someone else, they see that approach to the song mm -hmm. and they learn, this is a new way to communicate. Mm -hmm. This is an effective way to communicate. Mm -hmm. I know that happened to me in you even pointing out to me certain songs that had the title at the very beginning of mm -hmm. the song. Mm -hmm. And the title came up enough in the song. The title is the message. The title's mm -hmm. the thing we want to walk away with when we hear it. Sure. And you you showed me that. And now I think about it when I'm writing a song. What am mm -hmm. I actually trying to say with this song? Mm -hmm. Is it just a bunch of lines or is there a message that I want someone to take away? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And that that way of communicating, I learned that from you. Oh. You know? Well, good. I learned it from let's see, who could I possibly have learned that from? Cole Porter, maybe, Irving Berlin, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, yes, okay. <laughs> Dylan. I mean, uh, it is it is amazing some of the um, basic song structure. Mm -hmm. That was um, the way that some of the greatest popular music writers of all time, being Cole and Irving Berlin and you know Leonard and Lowe, all these great writers, the exact structure that they used in their tunes. The same thing. You'll hear that exact same structure with McCartney-Lennon. You'll hear that same structure in, I mean, you, it's, it's amazing. And you also hear some of that same structure in some of the great blues writers, you know, like, um, you know, Howlin' Wolf, you know, Jimmy Reed, Bo Diddley. A lot of that sort of structure on how you want to engage the listener as soon as possible has been passed on from generation to generation. And although the music can be incredibly different, everything from jazz to rock and roll to protest tunes to the blues, you know, but they all wanted to do one thing, communicate to their listener, whether it was a, you know, some rock and roll kid wanting to beat his dashboard to death on his way home from school, or whether it's somebody's life needing to be touched somewhere else, someplace a little bit deeper, a broken heart. A heart that wants to be broken. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who wants to fall in love. They want to feel that, you know, the, the good of it. And if, they, if there's some tough parts with it, they, it's part of life. Hmm. That's what we do in music. We, ex, we, we expose all of that. Heartbreak, the happiest moments that you can be while you're passionately in love with somebody. Or you absolutely just want to groove. You just want to beat something with your hands. You know, you want to get involved physically in the song. So whatever that, whatever that form of music is, it's amazing how similar they are in sort of the structure. I've been thinking lately about how the song can be a companion. So it's like you could be going through something really hard and someone writes a song from mm -hmm. a time when they went through something really oh, hard. Yeah. And it comes and meets you in that place and almost like holds a space with you. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't have to stay there because there are other songs that transition out of that place mm -hmm. and transition into something else. But mm -hmm. sometimes you just need someone to understand. Sure. And I think the song can do that sometimes. Oh, there's no question. I, can, I, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many times I've heard from songwriters to where, you know, like Billy Montana's song, Bring on the Rain. Our company published that tune. So we're very aware of the impact that that particular song had on people who were going through struggles, you know, serious, hard struggles, but how that one song empowered them. Songs like um, I Hope You Dance, yeah. you know, affected people's lives, you know, in a, in a positive way. I can't imagine there's anybody walking the face of the earth that has some appreciation of music, that just likes it, just just enjoys music, 
that don't have a handful of tunes that can bring back a memory the second they hear the first two or three notes of the tune and puts them in the same place they can be there visually, emotionally, and whatever that emotion was, whether it was um, a healing motion, you know, at a time where you feel you're the most vulnerable and you hear this song and you can't believe this person has obviously felt the same way, or how could they write it? You couldn't to affect me the way that you've affected me. And then some of the most joyous moments when, you know, you hear the first time you hear Little Richard, you know, screaming, good golly, Miss Molly. I mean, what does that do to a young teenager? Drives you crazy is what it does. You know, when I hear it now, it drives me crazy in a good way, Yeah. you know. And uh, Hugh Prestwood wrote this great song. Um, well, it's called A Song Remembers When, which is a stunning lyric, you know. And it, it talks about exactly what we're talking about. A Song Remembers When. I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a story that you told me mm-hmm. about your first guitar. It would be my second guitar. Maybe it was your my second guitar. My little black beauty. My little black Gretsch. We've got this story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd have to fast forward being in Chase, Kansas. My sister and I, to back up a bit, we were living with some other families for, you know, probably a five or six year period in, in separate families. She lived with a, a family who was uh, the minister of our little town, the Presbyterian minister. And then dead across the street was this other family that took me in. And um, while my parents were trying to get their, themselves together mentally and physically. So anyway, they, um, they went through the process and, and everybody sort of felt, as we all were, that this, our family unit would be reunited and that you know would wind up uh, together as a unit. Well, we moved to Denver to try to really take a giant step forward in a good way because everybody in Chase, Kansas knows everything about everything. So we moved to Denver and unfortunately, it just didn't work out. You know, the same problems happened and just a few years later, I think I was 14, and my mother actually died. And then my father had some physical issues and where he couldn't work. And so that put me, you know, in a, <laughs> a place that no, you know, 14-year-old needs to be. You know, we're just trying to fend for himself. And um, with a little help but Dad, but, you know, we were living in motel rooms and different places and spent a lot of time with my friends. So expendable cash, as you can imagine, was uh, was not available. And I, uh, I did have a couple little part-time jobs, you know, trying to get through high school. But I hadn't played trumpet in years because it wasn't, I mean, you know, there was no place to play. And they're not soft. They make noise. <laughs> but a friend um, did have a guitar, and uh, he showed me a few chords, which I, I love the guitar from the first time I, I picked one up. And I did save up about, I think it was like $20, and I bought this old archtop guitar, which was a brute to play. I mean, you know, your fingers would almost bleed just from trying to make an E chord. But it got me going. Me and my little, my my best friend, Eddie, we started a two-man band, you know, and just two guitars, that was it. You know, I played rhythm and he played lead. And uh, on the way home, there was this little music store on Hampton Boulevard in Denver, South Denver. And it was called Melody Music. I would stop in there, and of course they have the best of everything. They have a wall full of Fenders and Gibsons and Rickerbockers and and Gretches. And out of a selection of, I can't begin to tell you, well over 100 guitars, I would imagine, there was this one little guitar, guitar hanging on the wall. 
Uh, it was a black 1958 duo jet, they're called. And I picked up that guitar. I'd go in this little practice room, and I would sit there and I'd play my three chords with tremolo, without tremolo, and, and just flip all the switches on it for different tones, and I'd stay there for a half hour at least. And then I would unplug it, stick it back on the wall, and say thank you to them nice lady that would let me come in there and play that guitar. And three days later, four days later, I'd come right back again, look at that guitar, and she would say, go ahead, go ahead. And so I would pick the guitar up and go into the room and play maybe four chords that time, you know. So this went on for, I don't know, a couple of months probably. And finally I walk in there and I, I played it and came back and she smiled at me and she said, young man, are you ever going to buy that guitar? I said, no, I don't know. And she said, but you seem to love it. And I said, well, I, I do love it. And she said, well, you know, they're for sale. And I said, I know that. And I said, I, I can't afford anything like that. And she said, well, it's not like you have to pay for the whole thing right now. You could have your mom or your dad come in and they could co-sign for you. Because she knew I was underage, you know, 16, I think. And I have no idea why. But I, I just said, well, that, that won't work. I said, um, my mother died, you know, a year and a half ago. And, uh, and I said, my dad wouldn't. Well, he couldn't sign. He's not working. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And to be honest with you, I was quite embarrassed about the whole thing. I have no idea why I blurted all that out. But anyway, I told her, you know what, I'm, I, I shouldn't be coming in here. And so I, I won't come back. And she said, no, 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 you come back anytime you want. And so I didn't for maybe a week or two. <laughs> but then finally, uh, you know, I, you know I, I, I walked by the store and I just had to stop in. So I stopped in. Of course, the guitar was still there. So I picked it up and I looked at it. She said, go ahead, go play it. So I went in there and I played some more and I came back and um, she said, now, what was your name? And I said, what's well, Brent? She said, okay, Brent. She said, I've been thinking about something. And I said, well, what's that? She said, oh, you just so dearly love that guitar. And I said, mm-hmm, I do. And she said, well, how about this? Could you afford to pay, and would you promise to pay, $17 and like 23 cents a month? And I looked at her, and I said, I could do that. And she said, well, here's what I've done. I've gone to the bank, assuming you would walk back in here, and I've got some papers drawn out where I will co-sign for you. And I went, Excuse me? She said, I will co-sign for you like I'm one of your parents, except I'm just going to co-sign for you because I am an adult. And I said, okay. And she said, so you promise me you will make these payments? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, you're going to need an amp, too. She said, so you can take that amp that you've been playing on? I said, yes, ma'am. Well, that was over $500 worth of merchandise. And it wasn't layaway. It was, I picked the guitar up, I picked the amp up, and I walked out that store as a 16-year-old. Why that woman was moved to do that, it's hard to come up with her, a rational explanation other than she was just moved to do that. And she felt compelled to do that. And you talk about a game changer in my life because during that time period, with mom not being there and, you know, dad sort of not being there, that wasn't real conducive for me behaving correctly. 
I wasn't some hardcore hoodlum, but there were choices I made that could push me quite easily into a, a pretty dark place. You know, and I was somewhere in the middle. And so for an adult to do something that outrageously trusting of me, it gave me this feeling that, well, she really, she believes in me, and she's taking me for my word. I mean, that was as important as anything. I said yes, and she said fine. And when somebody puts that type of trust in you, you can't walk away from that. You just can't. So that is without a doubt one of the most important game-changing moments in my life to where I had an instrument that I could play, and it was beautiful, and I cherished it, and I knew the responsibilities that I had to do. And believe me, I never missed a payment, number one. And I'll tell you what, there is nothing I wouldn't have done to raise 17 bucks a month. I mean, there's nothing that I wouldn't have done, good or bad. <laughs> but, but fortunately, I didn't have to do anything bad. I had me a little job making a buck and a quarter an hour, you know, so I could, I could squeeze out that 17, 23 or whatever it was. And um, I have that guitar to this day and have never, ever thought about trading it in or selling it. And when I was playing in bands as a younger guy, all of my friends would trade guitars in every six months, depending on who they saw on bandstand or some TV show. So-and-so plays the Fender, i got to play a Fender. Some, no, now he switched to a Les Paul. i got to play a Les Paul. And that never crossed my mind. I would never part, never part with that little guitar. So her name was Mrs. Black, and she is, without a doubt, one of my true guardian angels. There's no question. Oh, I love that story so <laughs> much. Totally made me cry in the middle of it. But such a powerful example of... Again, seeing something in someone else and mm -hmm. calling that to the surface. Mm -hmm. um, she could have seen you as a hoodlum, like you said, <laughs> a little bit. She yeah. could have been like uh, a teenager. But yeah. instead, she saw she saw something in you. She saw the potential. She saw mm -hmm. a piece of your destiny that she called to the surface. Mm -hmm. And I love how she didn't just give you the guitar. I oh, love no. how she that trust that she put in you that mm -hmm. empowered you to have mm -hmm. a responsibility yeah. that was connected to someone who believed in you. Mm -hmm. I just think that's incredible. Yeah, I just chalk that up to God working in her life and working in my life. This is what people do. This is what this is what God's people do. Yes. I wasn't there yet, but it was all of those chain of events would be building blocks in my life and and for building my faith. Uh, you look back on all these different people that come into your life to give you opportunities that um, you look back and you just say, I just I have no idea why somebody would, would do that, but they did it. So anyway, it, it's a great journey, you know. I love that so much. Brent, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was putting this podcast together, I had that story in the back of my mind. There mm -hmm. were a few others that kind of, I was noticing a theme of like, wow, I really believe we're meant for good in each other's lives. Mm -hmm. I believe that we're meant to impact each other in that mm -hmm. kind of powerful way, that we're mm -hmm. meant to champion and encourage each other. Mm -hmm. And I just see you do that to everyone you cross paths with. There's a fatherly, mm. there's just a fatherly part of who you are mm. and how you look at people and how mm -hmm. you um, empower people. And I recognized that early on. I'm so thankful for it. 
because, you know, you've impacted me for good. Mm-hmm. And I think you're spot on. I think that's what God's people do. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. love that. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah. That's a wrap. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And please feel free to rate this podcast. Give it five stars if you feel like it. You can share it, leave a comment, or continue the conversation on Instagram or Facebook. Just look us up, Meant for Good and Meant for Good Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Barry Green. He provided financial support and overall encouragement for the engineering and production of today's interview. If you would like to contribute towards future episodes, you can email me, meantforgoodpodcasts at gmail.com.